Our passage this morning is once again taken from the gospel according to Luke. And uh, um, again, this is a, just a really um, amazing passage, especially in light of what we have just seen and what we have just, just witnessed through the witness of the apostles um, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, um, and so what we, we're going to see this week, we're going to see this, this is really kind of the, the first half. I really could have gone all the way um, through to, uh, to the end of the chapter and reading the, the context of this. But uh, this morning, again, we're just going to be focusing on, cha- on verses um, 37 to 45. Um, but again, we'll be, this is really kind of a, of a, of a half a sermon, the, the next half we'll see next week. But uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when we think about who you are and your glory and the the glory that Peter and John and James had just witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration as they saw your glory revealed as they saw the the veil pulled back for just a a brief moment of time so they could see your glory And as they heard the testimony of God the Father saying, this is my son, my anointed son, listen to him. And so, Lord, as they they heard these things and marveled and wondered at these things, it's perhaps shocking to us as we think about just how quickly they descended into faithlessness and unfaithfulness so that their thinking was distorted and twisted by their own preconceptions and false ideas. Lord, I pray that as we consider this passage this morning, I pray that you would help us also to see your glory and hear the testimony of your glory. And I pray that you will help us, Lord, to see our own weakness, to see our own failures, to see our own faithlessness and unfaithfulness. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to flee to Christ. Give us eyes of faith, Lord, that we might see. Help us, Lord, to cry out with the Father in this passage, I believe, help my unbelief. We ask this in the omnipotent name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Last week I spoke about Eric Weinmayer, the blind man, man who ascended Everest with the help of his friends. And as we discussed, it was truly an amazing feat. But you don't have to be blind or to climb a mountain as high as Everest to experience the thrill of reaching the summit of a mountain. 
Now, there's nothing quite like the feeling of having pushed yourself, overcoming obstacles and fears to reach the top of a mountain. Standing on the summit and taking in the 360-degree panoramic view is breathtaking. You feel like you could stand there for hours taking in the view. But at some point, you have to come down. And that's the kicker. Getting to the top is hard, but getting back down again is harder. You're already tired. Your muscles are aching. You don't have the anticipation of the summit to inspire you. And you're looking down the whole time. Now, I'm afraid of heights, and they, they say, if you're afraid of heights, don't look down. But when you're coming back down the mountain, you're looking down the whole way. And many stumble and fall on the way back down after the mountaintop experience. And I believe there's a spiritual lesson in this. Many stumble and fall after spiritual mountaintop experiences as well. They, they leave the mountaintop only to fall into the valley of defeat. Remember this clearly from my first missions trip when I went to took a group to, to Papua New Guinea. And in my naivety, I, I thought that, that we were going to, to reach the nation for Jesus. But I discovered very quickly that the Lord was going to do a lot more in me than he was going to do through me on this trip. And I do hope that we made some impact for the Lord, but God certainly did an impact on me. But then we came home, back to the Gold Coast in Australia. And it felt kind of like a reverse culture shock. Went back to the decadence and debauchery of the Gold Coast, and I, I felt above it. I was being proud, and I was being judgmental. And I was forgetting what the Lord had taught me about myself. I was forgetting that, that I also am just a sinner, saved by grace. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe, maybe you have experienced a spiritual mountaintop and then a subsequent fall. Maybe yours was quite different from mine, but, but maybe after coming down from the mountaintop, you've experienced some form of fall. Well, friends, the Bible is full of examples of this. Think of Moses and the nation of Israel after the, the mountaintop experience of the, of the Exodus as, as they witnessed God's powerful hand in, in removing them from captivity in Egypt. And then what happens is that even as the, 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 the waters had barely calmed back on the Red Sea after the Lord had parted it for them to deliver them, and then Moses goes up Mount Horeb to receive the, Mount Sinai rather, to receive the, the Ten Commandments, and when he comes down, he finds the people cavorting and dancing around a, the golden calf, worshiping it and, and making sacrifices to it and praising it as though it was the God that, removed, that brought them out of Egypt. But that wasn't just a failure for them. It was also a failure for Moses. As Moses, in his rage, takes the, the tablets of stone that God had written the Ten Commandments on with his own hand and smashes them on the ground. It was this same anger that would keep Moses from entering the land of Canaan. Think of Elijah after a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Remember, the, the, the prophets of Baal could not call, they, they tried to get their pagan idol to send down fire to consume their sacrifice. And all morning they tried, they, they danced around, they, they even cut themselves, chanting and, and calling out to, to Baal to, to ignite and to burn the, the, the ox that was there for the sacrifice, but there was nothing. Their, their God was, was powerless, their God was silent, and Elijah ever mocked them, saying that, that maybe their, their idol was, was musing or relieving himself or on a journey, or, or sleeping. And then so Elijah had them drench the wood of the, of, the, of the sacrifice with water. And then he called out to God, the real God. And God sent down fire that, that licked up the water in the trench and, and, and consumed the sacrifice and the wood and the rocks and the dust around it. And then God, Elijah praised God, saying, The Lord is God. The Lord, He is God. 
God. And then he commanded the people to seize the prophets of Baal and to kill the prophets of Baal. And they, they slaughtered them right there. Remember that Jezebel, the wicked queen, was in a rage at this. And she swore that she would kill Elijah. And so this same Elijah that had been so bold is now running for his life into the wilderness. And sitting under a broom tree, depressed, and asking God to kill him. Friends, we see that the great men of God often had these types of experiences. And the same was true for the disciples. Think now Peter and James and John. After coming down from the spiritual mountaintop on the Mount of Transfiguration, they had a big fall. And they're quickly joined by the rest of the disciples in their descent. And so with this passage before us in Luke 9, 37 to 45, we're going to see the disciples beginning to tumble. And then our passage next, we're going to see them picking up momentum as they continue to fall on the way down. In fact, they're going to keep on falling for pretty much the rest of the chapter as the focus is on their failures. Leon Morris describes them as those who rejoiced in the light of God on the mountaintop and then were defeated by the powers of darkness on the plain. Now Luke's main point here is not that you will have mountaintop experiences followed by lows. After all, you and I know that you don't need to have a mountaintop experience in order to experience failure. I'm sure you can relate to the disciples. We've, we've all experienced defeats. And perhaps sometimes you, you feel like your, your overall progress is backwards. Sometimes you, you are more keenly aware of, of your failures than you are of your victories. And, and that's why I often tell people that to, to take a step back and to consider the overall trajectory of, of your life. To, because the reality is that it's always something like this. But if you step back and you see the overall trajectory, that the tangent is, is that if you're a Christian, that tangent is upwards. Brothers and sisters, you are not the only one who experiences defeat. If I were to ask for a show of hands of who has experienced spiritual defeat in this past weekend, don't worry, I'm not going to do that. But if I were to ask for a show of hands, if we're honest and truly self-reflecting, if we're truly examining ourselves, we would all put up our hands. Because that's the reality. In fact, I'd be more concerned if you didn't put up your hand. Remember 1 John 1 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We are still sinners. We still sin. Jesus is the only great man in the Bible. We have the, those that, that we that we relate to and, and, and those that, that, we, that we look up to. But I'm concerned when I hear so many messages that are about dare to be a Daniel or, or be like David. There are some great things about David, but you don't want to be like David. Jesus was the only great man. Jesus is the only great man, period. You are not a great man. You are not a great woman. I am not a great man. Luke's main point here in this passage is, is that compared to Jesus, the disciples were faithless and unfaithful. Faith precedes faithfulness. Faith precedes faithfulness. If, if you don't have faith, you will never be faithful. You will never do what God has called you and commanded you to do without faith. For faith is the very foundation. Faith is the beginning. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
And if what you are trying to do, you're trying to do without faith. It's just self-righteousness. It's a works-based religion which is antithetical to the Christian faith. Now, as we think about the, the disciples, about what we've seen so far, we've, we've already seen them failing, haven't we? We've, remember, Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith in the boat when he had calmed the storm, and, and they, they, they were terrified when they'd gone to him. He said, he said, where is your faith? And then they're more terrified. Remember the feeding of the 5,000 when, when, they, when the, the people, when they began to realize, well, hang on, all these people here, they don't need food. They said, well, Jesus, you better send them away. There's nothing we can do to help them. Jesus made it an object lesson to show them how he would minister through them. What follows in Luke chapter 9 are four brief incidents that highlight the disciples' lack of faith, their ignorance, their pride, and their fleshly judgment. We're going to look at the first two this morning. And their failures are, are, are remarkable, and they, they, if you look at it on one level, draw a discouraging end to Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now, Jesus' ministry in Galilee is going to end in verse 51, just very shortly. As Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and sets his face towards his crucifixion. And we're left wondering here, well, if these men are to, are to carry on Jesus' ministry after his, his departure, the mission appears to be in jeopardy. And all three synoptic gospels present this event immediately after the transfiguration. It's in Matthew 17, 14 to 23, and Mark 9, 14 to 32. And they, they provide more detail than Luke does. And so I'm going to touch on, on those details as presented in Matthew and Mark as well uh, in, in the course of my exposition. Peter and John and James have just seen the unveiled glory of Christ with their own eyes. They had heard the very voice of God the Father testifying that Jesus is his son and commanding them to listen to him. They've heard that with their own ears. And now they act as those things have never happened. And this placement here, again, is important because it, it shows us the disparity between, or the contrast between Jesus and the disciples. There's a stark contrast between the Lord's power and the disciples' unfaithfulness. Between what the Lord is going to do in his crucifixion and the disciples' faithlessness. The disciples clearly have not arrived. And I think that we can all relate to this because of none of us have arrived either. Like the disciples, apart from Christ's strength in us, you and I are still powerless. Like the disciples, you and I are still capable of displaying amazing feats of faithlessness. We surprise even ourselves with our sins of omission and our sins of commission. Like the disciples, you and I don't do what we're commanded to do. Those are sins of omission. And like the disciples, we don't do what we're commanded, or we, rather we do what we're commanded not to do. Those are sins of commission. So this morning we're going to deal with, again, the first two incidences, incidents as we see Jesus' power and the disciples' unfaithfulness in verses 37 to 43a. And then Jesus' crucifixion and the disciples' faithlessness in verses 43b and 45. So first of all, Jesus' power and the disciples' unfaithfulness in verses 37 to 43a. Verse 37, it's the next day, the day after the disciples have gotten a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ with his face changed and his clothes becoming dazzlingly white. And Peter testifies in, in uh, 2 Peter 1.16 that there were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They actually saw the glory of God. It's the day after they heard the voice of God the Father saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And so they come down from the mountain with Jesus and are once again met by a large crowd. We've seen these large crowds are, 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 are 
pretty much constant now. Jesus really has to make extra effort to get away from the crowds. He has to go up a mountain to get away from the crowds. And when he comes down, they're there waiting for him. And Mark tells us that their arrival is met with conflict as the other nine disciples are arguing with the scribes. These are the religious lawyers who embraced the Pharisaical religion, the man-made traditions that they had added to the Word of God. This isn't off to a good start. Clearly, Peter was wrong in his assessment. He thought the kingdom of God had come. That's why he wanted to build, to build, he wanted that moment to last. But clearly, the kingdom of God has not been yet fulfilled. Now, so the disciples are, are likely arguing with the scribes about who Jesus is or, or maybe also about the situation that is about to come to light. As we'll see, interpersonal conflict is not the only conflict present here. There is spiritual conflict as well. In fact, spiritual conflict was driving the interpersonal conflict. Again, Peter wanted the mountaintop experience to end. Or never, never to end, rather. But there was much work that needed to be done. Primarily, not primarily through the, the disciples, at least not yet, but in the disciples. And this work will be accomplished through the cross of Christ. So now a man approaches Jesus, begging him to heal his only son who is possessed by an unclean spirit. Between Matthew and Mark and Luke, we get the full picture of the abuse of this boy at the hands of this demon. Matthew describes his condition as epilepsy. It could be that the, the demon is taking advantage of a physical problem in order to further harm the boy. The, this spirit made the boy unable to, to hear or to speak. And it would seize him and convulse him and make him foam at the mouth and often throwing him into the fire or into water in order to destroy him. This demon would only leave with, with great difficulty and it would maul him as it departed. What a horrible situation. It's unimaginable. Imagine if you were going through something like that. Parents, imagine if your child was going through something like that. Maybe you can relate on some level to this father. Maybe you have agonized over your children as they have faced major physical challenges. Maybe you've agonized in the, over them even more intensely as they have faced major spiritual challenges. It is very painful to see your child sick. But it is far more painful even to see your child spiritually sick. That baby, so cute and angelic, so full of potential and promise, becomes immoral, a thief, an addict, or equally bad, proud, worldly, atheistic, or a cult member. Now, if I'm looking at that list, I put my parents through most of that with the way I live my life. I'll never forget that look on my mother's face when she first came in to see me in the hospital. Maybe you've experienced something like that with your children. And we'll be considering just such a father and a son when we get to the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. But there's no sense here that the son's spiritual state was, was, had, been the cause of, had been caused by his sin. His problems, we're told, started in childhood. But nonetheless, the solution is still the same. Jesus is still the solution. Parents, are you concerned for your children? I'm sure you are. I'm sure you're thoroughly concerned for your children's well-being. And you're keenly attentive to their spiritual state. But whether it's their health or their spiritual lives, go to Jesus. Jesus is able to help. Cry out to Jesus on behalf of your child. Intercede for your son or daughter. God can heal your child. Countless children have been delivered from the clutches of sin and have come to saving faith in response to God's response to the prayers of Christian parents. Persist in prayer. 
Well, the depth of this problem before us here in this passage is presented, is presented to highlight the fact that this is a very difficult case of demon possession. It was too hard for the disciples. The man continues in verse 40. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, it's only by grace that this father would go to Jesus after his disciples have failed. They, they have not been, a, been very good representatives of Jesus. They have been very bad examples. But by grace, the father goes to Jesus asking for help. Remember, Jesus had given the disciples the ability to cast out demons. Back in verse 1 of chapter 9, when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, he'd give them authority over all demons. Over all demons. And they had experienced great victory. But for some reason, they couldn't deal with this demon. Now, Peter and John and James, it's true, have been with Jesus on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So really like when the father is referring here to the, the, his disciples not being able to cast out this demon. He's speaking of the, the other nine. But so that Peter and, and James and John said, what's with you guys? You couldn't do it. They're all indicted. They're all under the same judgment here. They're all under Jesus' indictment of verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation." Now, although Jesus refers here to the whole generation, the main target of his rebuke was the disciples. But as he continues, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He's going to be leaving soon. Jesus' ministry on earth is coming to a close. And they are going to be left to continue the ministry. And clearly they are far from ready. Their failure, remember, is going to characterize them through this whole section, almost to the end of the chapter. They are faithless, and they are twisted. The problem is twofold. Again, they're, they're faithless, and they're unfaithful. They're faithless. They, they lack faith. Matthew says this explicitly. Please turn with me to the parallel in Matthew chapter 17. It's going to stay here for a few minutes. Matthew 17, verse 19. When they come to Jesus, asking why they couldn't cast it out, Jesus said to them, verse 20, because of your little faith. Because you have little faith. It can be translated because of the poverty of your faith. Because of your poor faith. And the note here in the Reformation Study Bible is helpful. It says that the disciples' shortage of faith was not that they lacked confidence or did not expect success because they were apparently surprised at their failure, but because their expectation was not properly grounded in relationship to God because they had not gone to God in faith for the help to cast out this demon. And so because they are faithless, they're also unfaithful. That's the second problem. And that's really the focus here. The, 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 the second problem where Jesus calls them a twisted generation. The NASB uses the term perverted. Now, we should really understand this in, in light of the, the broader definition of, of the term perverted. They're, they're crooked. They, they have strayed from the straight path. They, they're not able to do what Jesus had told them to do because of their lack of faith. Because of their lack of faith, they're unable to cast out this demon, even though Jesus had given them the ability to cast out demons. They're unable to do what God has called them to do because they're not placing their faith in God. Their faithlessness has made them unfaithful. In Matthew's parallel account, again back in, in chapter 17, Jesus records, Matthew records Jesus saying that faith like a grain of mustard seed would, would proverbially be able to, to enable them to command a mountain to move. So what Jesus is saying there is that, is that, that even this, this difficult case of demon possession would provide no major obstacle or no real obstacle for real faith. But their 
faithlessness made it impossible. And their faithlessness, again, is going to be the major focus of the next section. In the parallel in, in Mark, Mark says that, that these do not come out by prayer. And prayer is the outworking of faith. So the implication is that the, the disciples did not pray. Maybe they, they, because of their success earlier in chapter 9, they, they'd gotten a little bit complacent and thought it was, it was, it was their power that would enable them to, to cast the demon. But they were, they were not going to God in prayer. If you have faith that God can do it, you will go to him in prayer. If, if you have faith that God can, can do whatever it is, whatever battle it is you're facing against the, the world or the, or the flesh or the devil, if you're trying to do it in your own strength, you will fail every single time. But go to God in prayer. In fact, even the fact that you pray shows that faith is real in your heart. And, and God will empower you. God will enable you to do what he has called and commanded you to do. And God will grant you the victory. Now, when Mark says here that these do not come up by, by, but by prayer, there's actually a, a textual variant here. There's different manuscripts that, that also include the words and fasting. So some good manuscripts say these do not come out but by prayer and fasting. Now, I don't want to spend a, a lot of time on it here, but, but there is definitely a spiritual benefit to fasting. Fasting is not a way to, to twist God's arm to make him do what you want to do, but again, it's an act of faith. Giving up a, a basic need, a basic physical need to spend extra focused time in prayer. I wonder, as we, as we think about this, what, what does your prayer life look like? D does, your, does your prayer life reveal faith in God or a lack of faith in God? I think if we're honest, to a certain extent, all of us, the, all of our prayer lives reveal at times a lack of faith in God because, because we, we don't tend to go to God first when a problem arises. We, we tend to, to go to God as a, as a last resort rather than our, our first port of call. We only go to God when we're really desperate, when we've tried everything else. But think of the prayer life of Jesus. Think of the, of the perfect prayer life of Jesus, that, that Jesus was in a, he knew his constant communion with his heavenly Father. So he was maintaining an attitude of prayer. He was regularly in prayer. He was constantly in prayer. And then at specific times, remember we talked about this, when, when something big was about to happen, he withdrew for special times of prayer because he, he knew that, that he, he needed the, God's help in order in his humanity in order to do what he had to do. So I wonder, do, do, you, do you need to ask God to give you the faith to pray? Paul provides the counter, the, the call to all disciples in Philippians 2.15. That you should be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. Again, those who do not have faith will not be able to do the least part of what God is calling them to do. Instead, they'll be tossed to, to and fro by the, the world's humanistic directives and by their own fleshly impulses. They will be twisted and perverted indeed. Are you being tossed to and fro by the world and by your flesh? Well, where is your faith? Look to the Lord. Look to the one who can help you. Look to the only one who can help you. Mark says that the Father says to Jesus, if you can do, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and save us. And Jesus replies, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. The father had a seed of faith, so he looked to the one who could help his faith. Do you have that seed of faith? Look to the one who can help you. Again, none of us have arrived when it comes to faith. 
Faith isn't something that, that you, you drum up by your own willpower. Faith is a gift from God. And so ask God to give you more faith. Do you think God's going to say no to requests like that? Of course not. It, it is God's earnest desire for you and God's plan in his perfect perfection plan of its perfect plan for you to that you would be sanctified you're predestined not just for salvation but also for sanctification and so god will answer that prayer in the affirmative and you might not see it it's, it's probably not going to happen like that but again as you step back step back and look over the trajectory of your life you'll see wow god really answered that prayer god gave me more faith In this, the, the, the father provided an object lesson to the disciples. They were powerless even to help their own faith. And they needed to cry out to God for help like this father looked to the one who could help his son. Jesus, God's only begotten son, is going to help this man's only son. And so he tells the father to bring the son to him. And the demon makes a last-ditch effort to harm the boy. He throws him to the ground and convulses him. And Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. Mark provides Jesus' words, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, Jesus' rebuke was obviously not limited by the demon's inability to hear. And Mark also says that the demon cried out and convulsed the boy terribly. When it came out of the boy, the boy was like a corpse. And so Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And Jesus restored the boy to the father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now just as an aside, I've talked about this before, but I have grave concerns when I think about some of of those who are influenced by the Word of Faith movement and the New Apostolic Reformation, and you hear them praying prayers like Jesus, commanding demons to come out of people. We are never told in Scripture that we are to directly assault the forces of darkness with our words. You will not find one example in the Scriptures of somebody doing this. Instead, we are told rather to say, the Lord rebuke you. The apostles did not have any power of their own. They needed to tap into Jesus' power. They needed to call out to Jesus to deal with this demon. And again, the same is true for you. Now, pretty good chance you're not going to be dealing with demon possession, but, but with whatever it is. Again, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, the power is not yours. It is Jesus' power. Go to him and ask him to help you. The people were astonished at the majesty of God. And as, as we have seen repeatedly, God was praised through Jesus' work. John MacArthur says here that the majesty that Peter and James and John witnessed on the mountain during the transfiguration was displayed in the valley as Jesus vanquished the demon. This is yet another example in the Gospels when the Lord delivers a young person. The, widow, the widow's son in name, Jairus' daughter, the nobleman's son in Capernaum, the Canaanite woman's daughter. Now, I know, of course, that the Lord is working in people of all ages, but this reminds me of, of what the Lord has been doing in our church lately. As we see many young people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, now, I know the temptations of the world are strong, again, at all ages, but it seems that particularly for the young people, things like popularity and immorality and hedonism and entertainment, the tensions and affections of that cute but ungodly member of the opposite sex, that they are all very strong in the lives of young people. But Jesus, as we've seen in our churches, is delivering people from these temptations. Parents, again, I know you earnestly yearn for your children not to be, to be sucked into these things because you know 
and in many cases from personal experience. The, the damage that that does in lives, in their lives, in the lives of those around them. And, and, and you know that, that those, those habits that they have, those sinful habits that, that if, they, if they pursue them, you, you know that, the de- that, that it will make them, it will even cause problems for them even after they become Christians. But again, the power comes from God. The power doesn't come from, from parents willing their children to repent. The power is from God. And so Jesus is here showing compassion. Jesus is overturning the effects of the fall. Jesus is fulfilling his ministry of setting the captives free that he had said at the beginning of his ministry that he's going to do in Luke 4, 8 and 18 and 19. Jesus came to overturn the works of the devil. Jesus will indeed crush the serpent's head, and he will have his heel bruised in the process, Genesis, Genesis 3.15. And it is to that battle and that victory that we turn next. Again, the disciples were powerless. They were faithless. But Jesus is powerful. The disciples were, Im- were impotent, but Jesus is omnipotent. And the same is true for you and I. Apart from Jesus, you could do nothing. But if you abide in Jesus, you will bear much fruit. John 15, 5. The disciples failed to cast out the demon. And next we'll see them failing to understand what Jesus came to do. So we're going to see Jesus' crucifixion and the disciples' faithlessness. In verses 43b to 45. Jesus' crucifixion and the disciples' faithlessness. The people were not just astonished at the majesty of God in this incident. When Jesus healed the boy, they, they were marveling at everything that he was doing. It wasn't just this incident. It was, it was the, the summation of Jesus' ministry that they were marveling at. This is really like the epilogue on Jesus' Galilean ministry. They marveled at the, uh, all that he had done in the region during this first part of his ministry. He had healed lepers, the blind and the lame, he cast out demons and calmed storms. He multiplied, multiplied loaves and fish to feed a multitude. He had raised the dead. He had pronounced sins forgiven. He had powerfully proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. And the people marveled. But Jesus wasn't one to bask in the glow of his previous accomplishments. Jesus kept on pressing forwards, pressing forwards to the goal. His time in Galilee is about to close. Just a few more verses. Again, verse 51. At verse 51, he's going to set his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. But now with his final instruction to the disciples in his Galilean ministry, Jesus again tells his disciples what he is going to do. He tells them what the people are going to do to him. He says in verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the second time that Jesus is is telling them about his coming suffering. Matthew includes Jesus' first statement in 17, 22, and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew also tells us the disciples' response. They were greatly distressed. The people may have marveled at Jesus, but it does not mean they put their faith in Jesus. Jesus is not deceived by popularity. The crowds are fickle. It's not going to last. In just a matter of months, marveling will give way to murder as they hand Jesus over to the Romans. And even worse, one of Jesus' own disciples is going to take the lead in betraying Jesus and handing him over. The Jews were culpable, for they crucified and killed Jesus at the hands of lawless men, Acts 2.23b. But the one who ultimately handed Jesus over to the Romans is God himself. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23a. In Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
Men will marvel at Jesus when his appearance becomes so marred beyond human semblance as the Romans beat him mercilessly and nail him to the cross. Isaiah 52, 14. The disciples were descending down the mountain, but the valley was far lower than they could understand. But brothers and sisters, Jesus went into the deep valley for you. Jesus walked through the valley, not just the valley of the shadow of death, but the valley of death, so that you could have life. Because Jesus walked the depths for you, you will never have to sink that low. Anything that happens to you in this life is infinitely better than you deserve. We've talked about this many times in the context of the, of the Lord's Supper, that we deserve the cup of God's wrath poured out on us for all eternity for our sin. Anything better than that is major mercy from God. Were God even to hand us an empty cup, it would be an, an unbelievable blessing because Jesus drank the cup to the dregs for our sin. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. And so anything less than hell is better than what you and I deserve. So maybe when you think about what is going on in your life, maybe even what is going on in your life at present, maybe you don't understand what God is doing. Maybe you're asking the question, why God? I don't deserve this. Just reflect for a moment on what you actually deserve. As Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So Jesus' person, that he's the son of man, and, and his work, the crucifixion, was beginning to be fully revealed. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the suffering servant. Now you understand that now, living as you do 2,000 years after these events, at least I hope you do, but the disciples did not yet understand. They did not see how their teacher could be all of the above. They, they knew the verses in the Old Testament scriptures that, that talked about these things, but they hadn't thought to put them all together in the person of Jesus. Peter and John and James, again, had just heard the Father's testimony as to who Jesus is and his ensuing command. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And now Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. Jesus is saying, listen to me. The Father has told you to listen to me. I am telling you to listen to me. These things must happen. And this command, listen to Jesus, is not just a command for them. It's a command for you and me as well. Let these words sink into your ears. But again, the disciples' failure is highlighted. They fail to understand. Now, it's not that Jesus' statement was unclear. What Jesus was saying was perfectly clear. Matthew said, shed some light on the response. They were greatly distressed. It's not that they didn't get what Jesus was saying. They understood what he meant, but they were deeply distraught by it. Now, now, on a level that is understandable, this is their Lord whom they love, and they're just beginning to figure out who he is, and then they're, they're hearing that he's going to die. It's, it's confusing to them, and it shatters their paradigms. Remember, they were still expecting Jesus to be the, the conquering king who would, would oust the Romans. They didn't see how Christ, the Christ, the anointed prophet, priest, and king could suffer and die. Again, they were still expecting a political Messiah. The conquering king would drive out the Romans. They were conflating Jesus' first incarnation and his second incarnation. When they looked at the testimony of the, of the Old Testament scriptures, they were emphasizing one half and forgetting the whole story. In my, my studies this, this past week during the Bible reading plan, I've been, been, been reading the, the, the latter part portion of, of Isaiah, the, the suffering servant, the servant songs. It's, it's all through Isaiah. 
to what Jesus is going to do. It's all through the Psalms. We saw this morning in Psalm 31 or, or Psalm 22 or, or Psalm 69. It's there in Genesis 3.15 that I alluded to earlier. The, 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 this, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, is going to have his heel bruised. It's there in the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. It was everywhere in the scriptures, but they had missed it. They had missed the point of the scriptures. They didn't understand that, that Jesus came as the suffering servant and he would come again as the conquering king. At this point, he was conquering sin and death. Much more dangerous enemies than the Romans. That Jesus came to bear the wrath of God, that God himself was their enemy. And Jesus came to bring reconciliation for them between God and men. But that he will come again in, when he returns, he will finally put death under his feet. He will finally destroy Every enemy, every world system that sets itself up against him will finally destroy the devil and casting him into the lake of fire. Again, there, there are two incarnations of Christ and they were, they were mixing them up. So they had heard Jesus' teaching, but they hadn't really listened to Jesus' teaching. It, it, had, it may have sunk to a certain extent into their ears, but it had not yet sunk into their hearts. They had heard Jesus' teaching and they had heard the Old Testament scriptures and they should have known, but they didn't. They were responsible for their lack of understanding. It was faithlessness. It's faithlessness. And Luke adds here an interesting piece of information. He says, it was concealed from them that they might not perceive it. Now, some commentators suggest that, that, that this means that this was hidden from them by God. Now, that's possible but I don't think that's what's going on here. Remember the context of the passage. It's, it's revealing the disciples' faithlessness, that they should have known, that they should have believed. Remember, this is not the first time that Jesus has told them what he's going to do. He just told them prior to going to the Mount of Transfiguration. And furthermore, remember what Jesus had told them in Luke 8.10. He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. So it's incongruent that that these things would be revealed to them and then hidden from them. And also in the parallels, in, in Matthew and Mark, there is no sense that God is hiding it from them. And so in applying the analogy of faith and comparing Scripture with Scripture, we interpret the less clear in light of the more clear. It seems as though this is not God hiding it from them, but that this is a lack of faith in the, on the behalf of the disciples. Again, they... they they should have known. They had the testimony, the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. They had the words of Jesus now twice. But they didn't believe it. It's a lack of faith. Because in their paradigm, in their presuppositions of how things should be, it didn't fit. It didn't jibe with them. I think there's a, a really important lesson for us in that. When you find things in the scriptures, in the word of God, that you struggle with, that, that you say, well, that doesn't really jive with me. Who are you going to listen to? Your presuppositions or the word of God? Again, when you come across something in scripture you don't agree with, don't try to change scripture to fit your thinking. Your thinking needs to change to fit scripture. They should have cried out like the father of the demon-possessed boy. I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus would have strengthened them. Jesus would have given them the faith they needed to truly understand. Brothers and sisters, though the path is dark, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus and walk in faith. Listen to Jesus and walk in faith. Luke goes on to say here that they didn't ask him because they were afraid. Think of all the other times they'd asked him questions, even, even foolish questions. And Jesus was patient with them. He answered them. He would have answered them if they had merely asked him. He would have explained it to them. Remember James 1, if, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him go to God. 
God will give you the wisdom and the understanding that you need. Again, it, it might not all come flooding in an instant, but God will answer that prayer. So look to God's word and commit your way to him. Even if you can't understand what God is doing in your life, God can be trusted. The Son of God can be trusted. So as Jesus had told the disciples to let these words sink into the ears, the audible words of God the Father spoken on the Mount of Transfiguration must have been ringing in the ears. This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. From the mountaintop, Jesus, Peter, John, and James had joined the other disciples and descended the mountain into a spiritual battle. The battle was not just with demons. The battle was, in, it was within the disciples' hearts. Jesus, though, was powerful. Yet the disciples were powerless. Jesus was faithful, but they were faithless. And their faithlessness made them powerless. They still had a lot to learn. And as we'll see in the, in the rest of this chapter, and even they're not even going to understand this, even all the way to the end. In fact, even after, after his death, they're still not going to get it. They, they needed to learn. They needed to grow. They still don't really understand who Jesus is because they don't understand what he came to do. It goes together. God's, the, the person of Christ and the work of Christ go together. You, you can't separate one from the other. They, they are meant to be, he's meant to be looked at as a package, as a great and glorious package. One who is infinitely beyond our understanding, but one who has given us understanding from his word. He promised to give us his spirit to help us to understand his word. The disciples failed to cast out the demon, and they failed to understand Jesus' ministry. Next week, we're going to see that their failures will get even worse. Encouraged? Well, I don't know about you, but, but I take some encouragement of this. I take some comfort of this. Now, not that I, I rejoice or, or delight in, at the disciples' expense, but when I read this, I see myself. When, when, I, see the, when I read this, I see errors that I have made, and I see er errors that I might make in the future. But more than that, I see the victory. And I see that the, the, the victory was won for us by this very event that the disciples were denying. And that even though they, they de demonstrated a lack of faith, that Jesus would give them the faith that they needed. And we, we see this as, it, as we, and I'm excited that as we're going to, when we finish Luke, Lord willing, Lord willing, we're going to get into the book of Acts and we'll, we'll see the progression of the disciples. And it's, it's not just that they, that, okay, they, all, they figured it all out. It's that God's power through the Spirit was at work in them. So it's what's often called the Acts of the Apostles is, is, is really, I think, more aptly entitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But through the, the rest of their ministry, enemy forces are going to continue to come against the disciples. The devil and the world are going to throw everything they've got at them. And the, the devil and the world will even take their lives. But Jesus overcame both for them. And Jesus' victory is their victory. And Jesus' victory is our victory. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are, for all you have done, and for all you continue to do and all you will do. Lord Jesus, we praise you for this passage of Scripture, for even as we saw your glory, we see the frailty and the fallibility of men And Lord, our frailty and our fallibility is highlighted. But Lord, we rejoice in the fact that, Lord, you won the victory for those disciples at the cross. 
you won the victory for all disciples at the cross. You won the victory over the world and the flesh and the devil for us. As Lord Jesus, you, the sinless Lamb of God, suffered and died because of our sins. And Lord Jesus, even as three days later you rose from the grave, And Lord, how you ascended to heaven and continue to make intercession for us, even at this very moment. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us. We believe, help our unbelief. Grant us all the gift of faith that we may walk in faithfulness, that we may grow in faithfulness for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. Amen.